After that excellent video, this feels a little bit redundant, but nevertheless, uh, the reading for today is from uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, and you'll find it on page uh, 985 uh, in the uh, Bibles. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. You might want to have a Bible open there at Matthew chapter 18. Uh, and I'm going to pray for us. We'll ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Father, we thank you that uh, you teach and instruct us through your word. We pray that this morning uh, you would do just that for us. Um, that as you uh, challenge us with this notion of forgiveness, what it means for us and um, how we should uh, forgive others, uh, that we would be receptive uh, to uh, what you place upon our hearts. We pray that you would move us to action as we need to, uh, to honour the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, I'm sure most of you have seen this film, uh, Avatar. It is actually until last year, it was the highest grossing film of all time. It just got bumped off by uh, Avengers Endgame, um, which for film buffs is a, a great tragedy, I'm sure, that they're the two most popular films in all of history. Uh, how many people have seen the movie, by the way? Just so I know where I'm going with this. Okay, sure. Um, now, the movie is set on a planet, uh, an imaginary planet, called Pandora. Uh, and in the, in the film, uh, Earth has discovered this planet a long way away, and they've uh, started mining this planet for its resources because we've depleted all of the resources on Earth. 
Um, now, the planet is not uh, unoccupied. The people who live on the planet already are these blue people called the Na'vi. Uh, and the world itself, the world of Pandora, is presented to us as this kind of uh, utopian, uh, idyllic paradise uh, with all of these weird and wonderful uh, creatures and uh, exotic landscapes it's quite uh, an experience just to see the, the world that has been created uh, by James Cameron, among others. Uh, now, soon after the film was released, there were reports emerging of some people experiencing uh, what could be described as a form of depression after seeing the film. It was suggested that some people were struggling with the idea that they would never be able to actually visit the fantasy world of Pandora that they had seen. Uh, this beautiful utopian world would only ever exist on the screen. And it was making it harder for some people uh, to confront and to deal with the reality of life here on Earth. So I think sometimes we can struggle with uh, what is a natural longing for what is ideal, what is perfect, and having to live in the reality of our broken, imperfect world can be all the more frustrating and exhausting because of it. And I think, particularly for Christians, this can be magnified when we think about life as a part of a church, as a part of a Christian community. It can be quite devastating when our expectations about life as a part of a church and part of a Christian community, when those expectations aren't met, particularly when fellow believers let us down, when they hurt us. And, of course, we know it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And if we're being honest with ourselves, uh, we know that it's not just a problem for others, is it? It's not just other people who disappoint and hurt us. Uh, we, sadly, are the cause of that in other people's lives at times too. One of the things that uh, is so refreshing and, I think, uh, convincing about the Bible is that it has no interest in sugarcoating any of this for us. Jesus himself was no fanciful idealist. He operates in the real world and talks about real world problems. The Bible nowhere tries to hide or to gloss over how hard life in this world often is. Nor does Jesus promise that trusting in him will become an instant fix for all of our problems and our relationships. Jesus doesn't want us to be naive or ignorant about what life as a part of his kingdom is going to be like. That perhaps we might think finding peace with God will inoculate us from the pain and the sadness and the disappointments that we find in this world. And Jesus knows better than us that being a part of his church isn't going to solve that problem necessarily because his church is going to be made up of imperfect people. He knows that there will be sin and failures and disappointments. So how do we deal with all of that? Well, in the chapter that we're looking at today in Matthew 18, Jesus shows us how we can get on as a community of people, a community full of imperfect people. He shows us how we can relate to each other in a way that's right, in a way that's healthy, even though we will inevitably disappoint and hurt each other at times. 
The ideas that run through this chapter are really about community. It's about relationships, how to hold them together, how to deal with the difficulties and the failures. Jesus here teaches us a number of things. He teaches us that humble hearts are needed. He teaches us that forgiveness is essential. And he says that we should always be motivated by our love for others with a desire to see relationships restored and preserved. So to begin with, if we're going to make this thing work, this thing we're a part of that we call church, Jesus says we're going to need humility. It's where the chapter begins. It begins with the disciples coming to Jesus and asking this question about greatness. Have a look there in verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus had just been teaching them about the kingdom that he's bringing in, and the disciples want to know who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom. Presumably they mean one of themselves as his disciples. But the thing about the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring is that it's not going to value or assess things in the same way that our world does. Our world will measure greatness by things like power and influence and status, achievements. But Jesus says it's not going to be like that in his kingdom. In fact, what Jesus does is he takes a child and places him in the centre of them all and says, this is what you need to be like. See it there in verse 3. He says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be truly great in my kingdom, says Jesus, you need to be like this child. Now, what is it about children that Jesus is referring to there? Because children can be all sorts of things, both good and bad, can't they? Well, Jesus says he's talking about humility. Uh, Our translation says being lowly, the lowly position of a child. Other versions, which you might be familiar with, talk about humbling yourself like a child. It's the same word in the Greek. Children are inherently humble. Now, you might have a chuckle about that if you've ever had children, um, because in my experience, most of them are little narcissists who think the world revolves around them. Uh, So they don't inherently strike you as being humble beings. But they are humble, they are lowly in terms of their status, in terms of their power. Children are vulnerable. They have no money, no real status in the eyes of the world. They can't look after themselves. It's the reason we call them dependents. They have to rely upon other people to provide what they need. So there's an inherent humility in being children, in being a child. And so Jesus uses a child as the example, and he says that's the model for you. Uh, The humble are great in his kingdom. And humility is what we need if we're going to hold together the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. If we get in the business of contesting with other people for power, competing with other people within the life of the church for position and status, if we're people who let our own pride run unchecked, well, we're going to end up making a very big mess of things. In fact, you may have had an experience of that in a church. You might have seen firsthand a church explode or perhaps implode 
And I'd suggest a lack of humility is almost always at the centre of such sort of conflicts. It's always a disaster in a church community. Humility is essential if we're going to have unity and real peace with others and among ourselves. Perhaps the greatest enemy to peace is pride. That attitude where people just can't let things go, where you're quick to take offence, where we give ourselves permission to hang on to grudges and old slights, where we expect more from others than we demand from ourselves. That all comes from a place of pride. To be kingdom people is to be people with an understanding of who we are in Christ, that we are each forgiven, grace-dependent people. That's where true humility will come from. See, those who know Christ ought to know better than anyone that they are no better than anyone else because we're all just as desperately in need of God's mercy as anyone else. It's also the way of our King and Saviour, isn't it? Our gentle and humble servant who laid down his life for us. When we're clear about the gospel, both who Jesus is, but also what he's done for us and where we stand before God because of him, when we understand that, that becomes the engine room, the the fuel that enables us to relate to others in ways that are healthy, that promote peace and unity. And if you don't understand who you are in Jesus then what you're about to hear him say about forgiveness will not only seem ridiculous, but I'd suggest you simply won't be able to do it. See, for a lot of this chapter, Jesus wants to talk about the relationships we have with others, particularly amongst fellow believers, amongst the the Christian community. And Jesus, as I said before, knows that even in his church, mistakes are going to be made, hurts will be caused, there will be selfish behaviour, And so how do we express God's love among us when it's full of people like you and me? Jesus says forgiveness is the only way. Peter has been listening to Jesus talk about forgiveness, and we're going to come back to something uh, that we've just skipped over here. Uh, But Peter asks a question of Jesus, and it's there in verse 21. It's where our video and our reading picked up, uh, the story in Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter puts this figure out there of of seven. Um, I imagine Peter thought that was a pretty generous suggestion. I think if someone sinned against you in some way that you would forgive them seven times over. Uh, It does seem like a reasonably generous suggestion. But Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven but 77. Uh, some other translations, as we saw in our kids' video earlier, actually put the number at 70 times 7. But I think either way, the number is a little on the crazy side. Whether it's 77 or 490, uh, they're both ridiculous numbers to put out there for how many times you should forgive somebody. I mean, seriously, if someone was stealing from you, you're not likely to wait to the 76th time and say to them, OK, that's it. You get one more, and then the forgiveness dries up. 
I think the point Jesus wants to make is that forgiveness ought not to have a cap. We're not to think about it as sort of some quota system that we allow people that they can eventually exhaust. Like we saw last week, asking how many times you should forgive someone, it's the legalist's question. Jesus wants to think about all of these things more in terms of relationships. And it's Peter's question that prompts Jesus to tell the story of the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant. It's a story that challenges us in our thinking about forgiveness. It starts there in verse 23. I won't read it over again. The story is probably pretty familiar to you. It's the story of a king and a servant. The king, we're told, is doing his books. He discovers that there's a servant who owes him 10,000 bags of gold. Uh, the, the currency that's mentioned in the Greek is a talent, which is a huge amount of money. A bag of gold is, is a pretty accurate description. In fact, 10,000 talents in today's money is literally billions of dollars. It's a crazy amount of money. How a servant like that would come to owe the king that amount of money, it's, well, it's not the point. Um, it's, it's a story. The king demands that this man repay his debt or his whole family is going to be sold off into slavery. The man falls before the king, begs him to be patient, promises to pay him back everything, which is probably a promise that the king knows he has no possible way of coming through on. We're told the king takes pity on this man and chooses to forgive his debt, wipes it out, says, you don't owe me a thing. This servant, high on his newfound freedom, goes and finds a fellow servant, a servant who owes him 100 silver coins. Today's money, it's probably about $25,000, four to six months' wages. Jesus says, he grabs this fellow servant by the throat, starts shaking him, demands that he pay back what he's owed. Now, of course, others see this, report it back to the king. Uh, the king is understandably furious and has him thrown in prison. Have a look at the king's conclusion there in verse 32. It says, The master called the servant in, You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Withholding forgiveness is simply not an option for us, says Jesus. He says, you need to remember who you are. You need to remember what God has done for you. See, a person who cannot forgive is a person who's forgotten what they have been forgiven of. A person who cannot forgive is a person who has forgotten what they have been forgiven of. See, in case it's not obvious, you are the servant in this story. You've been forgiven a debt that you could never have hoped to repay. Billions and billions the payment for your sin is not something that you could have worked off. In fact, the cost of restoring you to fellowship with God is simply beyond your capacity to meet. You don't need a payment plan. You needed mercy. You need God's grace. You need a saviour for the problem that you're in. 
Jesus says we ought to spend some time dwelling on that when we find ourselves in a position where we need to forgive someone else. Is it really worth destroying a relationship over a few thousand bucks when you've been forgiven billions? It's not worth it, nor is it right. We're supposed to be people who forgive like God does, who are generous towards others. If you are someone who has experienced that limitless, overwhelming forgiveness of God, ask yourself if you think it's right that you would withhold forgiveness from another. Ask yourself if there are people, perhaps even sitting in this room, that you need to forgive. Are there grudges that you still hold against people here? Are there things that people have said to you or done to you that you know in your heart you have never forgiven them for? We do not have the luxury of hanging on to bitterness and anger within the church. No matter how right you think you are, no matter how right you are, we need to be people of forgiveness. If there's someone you know you've refused to forgive, I think it's time you confronted that. It may be that there are people sitting here this morning who you know you need to go and speak to, to ask for forgiveness. Perhaps your pride has been keeping you from doing that. Don't let that drag on. Act on that conviction. It may not be an easy conversation. I suspect it won't be. But we need to do those hard things for Jesus' sake. Because that's what forgiveness is for. It's there to restore relationships. Yes, it can help you to heal, but that's not its primary function. It's there to preserve and restore relationships. It's no coincidence that in the same chapter where Jesus talks about forgiveness, he also talks about confrontation. He talks about how to deal with someone who has wronged you. Being people who forgive doesn't mean that we silently ignore every wrong, every offence. In fact, very often, that's not the loving thing to do. There is a place for correction, a place for confrontation, but it must be done in love. And there always has to be an offer of forgiveness at the end of that line. See, a little earlier in this chapter, Jesus gives us a bit of a model for how uh, to resolve things when someone has done you wrong. It starts there in verse 15. Have a look at that. Jesus outlines this kind of three-step process for us. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, I've added the against you and I'll explain why in a minute, uh, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, the previous version of the NIV translated verse 15 as if your brother or sister sins against you, 
the new version of the NIV has taken out the against you part. Um, and uh, there are reasons for that. I won't get into the Greek textual criticism of it, but I think the previous version of the NIV is the better translation, uh, that it retains the against you. Uh, the words are there in the Greek. So the idea is, I think Jesus has on view here, a situation of personal conflict. That if your brother or sister sins against you, if there's been a, an offence caused, a wrong done. And Jesus says, when that's the case, try and sort it out just between the two of you. And if that fails, it may need to bring some other people in. Uh, and then if that fails, then take it to the wider church. I think that the issues that might warrant this sort of action ought to be pretty serious. You know, this isn't a kind of, I'm a bit upset with you because you didn't call me on my birthday kind of offence. I would hope you'd agree that it would be unnecessary to bring in a mediator into that situation, unless you take your birthday calls very seriously. We need to be careful not to make mountains out of molehills. I think our first response ought to be to deal with each other generously, uh, or perhaps as uh, Paul writes, this idea of bearing with one another, uh, not taking easy offence at slights caused, thinking the best of other people's motivations rather than attributing uh, some sort of um, unkind intent. As Peter writes in his first letter, he talks about allowing love to cover over a multitude of sins. But here Jesus does outline how to deal with someone who has sinned against you. And he says, firstly, just try and keep it between the two of you. Try to sort it out directly. Perhaps no one else even needs to know about this. Maybe you've overreacted. Maybe you've misunderstood. Maybe you've made an unkind assumption. Go and talk to them. Try and sort it out between the two of you. If that doesn't work, it can't be resolved, then other people may need to get involved. But if you care about that other person, you should also care to try and preserve something of their, their dignity, uh, their integrity, even if they have wronged you. It shouldn't be people who are quick to spread gossip and slander and share that story with, well, anyone you happen to bump into in the next week. And we need to be careful here because I don't think the point of this is to give us permission to go around and confront everyone around us with all the things that we don't like about them. We need to remember also what Jesus said about judging each other, about removing that plank from our own eye before we go looking for the speck in another. But somewhere between kind of total apathy in our relationships towards each other and being kind of a nitpicking fault finder on the other, there's a balance in here. And it ought to be found by striving to preserve and restore relationships. See the motivation there in verse 15 that Jesus lays out for us? He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. That's what the aim should be and consistently in the New Testament when it talks about resolving conflict the aim is always to win people over to restore them to relationship restore them to godliness if they need to be challenged we should care about that but ultimately to preserve the relationship and restore people uh, and reconcile with them so just before this part of the story Jesus had told the story of a shepherd who goes looking for a straying sheep, a lost sheep it's a picture of God's Love for the lost, for the wandering sheep. 
And Jesus says we need to share that same concern for each other, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when they fail, even when they fail us. But what matters is our motivation. What matters is our goal. See, if you have no intention of reconciling with this other person, what really is the good of going and showing them their fault? If you aren't ready to forgive that person, that's just plain selfish, isn't it? You might get the satisfaction of unloading on them, but if there's no restored relationship on the other side of that, well, it's not how God wants us to be. Jesus hasn't got rose-coloured glasses on when he looks at this world. He didn't pretend that his church was going to be perfect. In fact, he teaches us these things with the expectation that we're going to be a far cry from that. But here he gives us some tools, equips us for how we can deal with the reality of sin in this world and sin even amongst ourselves and in our own relationships. And he wants to show us a way that we can deal with that in a way that honours him. And so he shows us here that because we will all fail, we will all at times disappoint and hurt each other, we need humility, the humility that comes from understanding who we are in Christ, the humility that comes from understanding the gospel of Jesus. We need to be people who are ready and willing to forgive one another. Yes, there's a place for correction. But Jesus says, always do that with a motivation of love and with the aim, with the desire to see that relationship restored. Was is going to lead us in prayer. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the faithfulness of Simon in teaching from your word this morning. We pray that our lives would be filled overflowing with the power of your love so that we can make a difference in this world and to you. We ask for your help in reminding us that the most important things are not based on talents or material possessions, but the most significant thing we can do in this life is to love you and to choose to love others. Help us to love, remembering how much you have loved us. Help us to forgive, remembering how much you have forgiven us. Help us to be generous, remembering how generous you have been to us. We know you want us to live as a community. We pray that you will give us strength to live as you want us to live in a community of peace and unity. In 2020, we were faced with the importance of relationships. Father, help us to live lives of humility and forgiveness so we can nurture and restore and care for the relationships with one another, within our church, within our families, within our community. We are weak, Lord, But even when we are weak and sinful, you are strong within us. We pray that we will turn to you and ask you to help us do the things you want us to do. Thank you that you equip us to face each day with the power of your love, your forgiveness and your grace. 
Be with us all as we leave here today and go out into the world this week. May we commit to focusing on our relationships as we have heard today. And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.